Steve Hartland. I have, uh, I have transitioned. Uh, and uh, the transition is going better than ever. Now, a lot of you know me. My name is Michael Crawford, and um, I was the lead pastor of Freedom Church. Thank you very much, brother. Uh, in Baltimore City, and I think uh, you guys have recently just heard from Joseph Jones, the pastor at uh, Windsor Mill, and so I hope you enjoyed him. If not, he's still my little brother, so I can uh, just give me the feedback and I'll uh, make sure he gets it right next time. No, I heard it was a good time. So it's always good to be back here, and it's, it's always, for some of you who don't know me, for me, you may say, man, this guy is very casual and he seems very at home and I don't even know who he is. That's because I've known Pastor Steve for decades and I've been involved, directly involved with Trinity for 11 years now. Uh, as I remind some of you and some of you here for the first time, my family, my wife's here, my five kids, we moved here in July of 2009 to plant Freedom Church in Baltimore, and we started in 2010, and this church played the most strategic role in getting freedom started. And as I like to always remind you guys, you guys not only birthed a child, but you now have an ecclesiological grandchild. And that grandchild, the leader of that grandchild, was here last week preaching. And so we are grateful for churches like Cornerstone that are really committed to the Great Commission, like really, not just in word only, not just preaching, but committed in word and deed and resourcing, not just money, but prayers uh, and, and just showing up and, and participating. And so we, I want to thank you guys again for the role you played. And of course, it was always our aspiration to be like you guys, to grow up one day and not just be a church plant that everyone was sympathetic for like a little baby, oh, but to grow up and actually reproduce. And we're, we're excited about that. And we're also excited about the next year or two. We have some men in the pipeline at both freedoms that are hopefully going to go out and plant a church. There's one guy I think is going to assessment um, in, in the fall this year with uh, the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware and North American Min Mission Board Sin Network to plant maybe in 2021. So we're excited about that. So then you're going to have a child who birthed a child who birthed another child. So you guys are old. This church is really old, uh, but old in a great ecclesiological way. And so praise God for that. Huh? Who would have ever thought that the reach of this church would extend so far? But that's what happens when we close our eyes and we trust God and we walk in faith and obedience. And so we want to we wanna, um, just thank you guys again for your work in the gospel. This morning, I want to preach to you from a little phrase in the Bible called God of our fathers, the God of our fathers. And um, I want to spend some time with a phrase in the Bible that most of us, frankly, have probably never spent time with. There are many phrases in the Bible and many sayings in the Bible that we traffic in. They're more popular. Uh, they're kind of more salient in our Christianity. But the God of our fathers is not one of them. Now, if you were Jewish and you happen to be a Jewish believer, the God of our fathers would be like your go-to phrase. When we think about our go-to phrases for God, we don't typically describe him or attribute him as being the God of our fathers. 
But if you were Jewish, you would know him as the God of our fathers because he showed up so many times as the God of our fathers. Matter of fact, he would introduce himself as the God of our fathers. We know that God has a lot of names, and one of his names is Holy, and, and one of his names is I Am, and, and one of his names is Jesus right? And we, he has a lot of names. Uh, but by this phrase, this name, we have rarely come to know him. And this, this teaches us so much about God. And I, I fell in love with this, this kind of phrase, actually reading through the Old Testament again and reading about my good friend David. And I call David my really good friend because he's a guy I can relate to. Though I haven't killed anyone yet. Um, <laughs> Yet, emphasis is on yet. Um, I love David uh, because David was just a real dude. He was a real guy who served a real God who really, really loved him. And, uh, and the Spirit just led me to this phrase because God it was David's God and he took ownership of David and responsibility and he was unashamed to claim throughout all of history that David, that's my guy. When he was great, when he's bad, that's my guy. And so I'm excited about that. Um, we have this concept, and when we, when we deal with Christianity, brothers and sisters, um, there are a lot of things about Christianity that's appealing to us, right? Uh, some of us are really attracted to, like, the rules, and we like rules, and we like clarity, and we like do's and don'ts. We're honest. Some of us are, and that's, that's not, we, we, we kind of give a bad name to people who like rules, but rules are actually good. They actually are. The law is good. The Bible says the law is good. It's good. And some of us are attracted by just the philosophy of our Christian worldview, how it's preeminent and how it explains how we got here and why we're here and what went wrong and how it gets fixed. In other words, when we look inside of Christianity, we look inside the 66 books, there's a lot of reasons to be enamored with the Bible and with Christianity. But there's really only one real reason why we ought to be enamored with Christianity, and that's God himself, right? about who he is and, and, and what he's done. And this morning we sang a lot about who he is and we were reminded in those songs about what he's done, a.k.a. creation, right? Walking with his people throughout generation and generation, being that faithful, loving, redemptive God. We know who he is and what he's done most clearly because of what he's done in the person and work of Jesus. There is nothing God has done that trumps sending his only begotten son into the world for us so that whoever believes would have eternal life. But we're also looking forward to what he's doing. If you're not too caught up in this age and all of the things that are going on in this age, you know there's an age to come. There's an age that's much better than this. It's much better than getting back to the normal that we're all hoping to get. It's way better than that. Because in this age, there's the come, there's no pandemics. Uh, there, there's no division in the church over ideologies and philosophies and po politics and all these things. There are, there are no divisions over ethnicities. There, there's none of that. In this age, there's, there's no tears and there's no death. There is glory and worship. It, it, it mimics Genesis 1 and 2, pre-Genesis chapter 3. But the most attractive thing about our religion is not the age to come. It's not all the miracles God has done. It's God himself. Amen. We get God face to face. And this phrase this morning, I hope, elicits or helps you to Again, be reminded of what a good God you have, what a good God we all have. 
and how he relates to us. So this phrase, the God of our fathers, it, it incorporates all of these things I've been talking about, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. It's a packed phrase. So I want to do three things with, with this phrase this morning. First is I want to make sure we understand it. Then I want to show you two usages of it and then give you a few applications and we'll get out of here. So first of all, I want to understand it. There's a little, there's a verse where this phrase is found in Acts chapter 3 verse 13. And Peter, the church has been launched, and they were walking through the temple, and they find this blind man, and they healed him. And you remember, that guy didn't open up a theology book and start reading and put a suit and tie on like I did today. That's not what he did. He was leaping and, and dancing. He was like, this is amazing, right? This, this, this healing that happened. Um, and as a result, people were looking at Peter and John like they did it. And so what they begin to do in this chapter is explain, no, we didn't do this. God did this. And in the midst of explaining that, verse 13 reads this way. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and here's our phrase, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And they go on to talk about how you denied him and you killed him, but he was raised from the dead. And, and then Peter ends with saying, uh, it is through this Jesus, this man has been given perfect health. So Peter's arguing, look, um, Jesus really did this. Don't look at us like we're heroes. We, we, we got this power and this authority from God. But he has this little phrase in here, the God of our fathers. The God of our fathers. And this is one of those phrases like Spurgeon would say, just wouldn't let me go. I tried to preach something else this week. I tried to preach something far more vanilla with a little chocolate chips on it, but it wouldn't come to me. And this phrase would not let me go. It literally, as Spurgeon says, reeks up and grabbed me by the throat and says, you must preach me. The God of our fathers. What does that mean when he says that? Well, obviously, it encompasses what he says in the beginning of 13, the God of Abraham. Powerful statement. A lot of us have gotten to know Abraham. We know that he lived 75 years without God. That's amazing. Because what that tells us is what we'll revisit in a little while. It shows us how patient God is. 75 years. Some of you have been waiting a long time for people to come to faith and y'all done gave up. And Abraham, 75 years before God called him clearly into his service. The God of Isaac, which was a miracle child. God is saying, I'm the God of the old guy. I'm the God of babies that weren't supposed to be. Think about what God is claiming here. And then the God of Jacob. You know Jacob's nickname given by the Bible is the deceiver? That's the guy who, who, who had a brother named Esau. And remember, Jacob was the one in the womb that was fighting in the womb. John the Baptist was leaping for joy in the womb. Remember that? Jacob was fighting in the womb, right? And we know that Jacob's childhood was, it was, it was tumultuous, right? Because he had all the drama going on between him and his dad and all these types of things. Jacob, and Jacob was the man who would have 12 sons. One of them was Joseph, ended up in Egypt. God's saying, all of that, I'm their God. I'm associated with them. I'm related. And I'm not ashamed to openly tell you, yeah, I'm their God. But then Peter says he's the God of our fathers, and he further expands the usage of this phrase to say, as, as far back as you can see, where people look to Jehovah, where they look to the I Am, when they look to El Roy, 
when they look to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as far back as you could see, whether it's Rahab or Samson, it doesn't matter who it is, it could be Jeremiah, it could be even Jonah, I am the God of your fathers. I was with them. I was faithful. I was righteous. I was holy. I was loving. I was just. I reprimanded them. I held them. I walked with them. I provided for them. I am the God of your fathers. Our fathers are all those who have gone before us, brothers and sisters. Our fathers makes us focus on the past. Our fathers remind us of those who have run that race, as Hebrews 11 says, it's completed that race. And God clearly wants us to know that he is our God, but also the God of our fathers. I begin to think to myself, well, why would God even say this? I know it was kind of so common in the Old Testament for this phrase to exist, but I think Sometimes it's easy when something's repeated a lot of times, you just ignore it or you just, you keep scrolling. Yeah, I already seen that, I already seen that, I already seen that. But, you know, we've learned that, wait a minute, if God is saying something over and over, maybe we ought to stop scrolling. Maybe there's something, maybe this is a pregnant phrase, the God of our fathers. What is God trying to tell you and I this morning by this phrase? He's trying to ring the bell and say, y'all ain't, y'all ain't hearing me. Y'all are not seeing the implications of this. You guys are not seeing how glorious I am, how good I am, how loving, how patient, how sympathetic. You're not seeing how merciful I am. You're not seeing how compassionate I am by that very phrase, God of our fathers. You're not seeing who's in my family. You're not seeing all the different types of people in my family. You're not seeing the glory of the whole picture. Let me show you two usages of this phrase. In other words, two other places in the Bible where this phrase is used just to kind of further saturate you in this before we get into some applications. Um, one of them is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, David is rejoicing because um, they're in the process of building the temple. And um, they are... They've received a, a lot of money, and the offerings have come in, and David is praising the Lord in regards to this offering. And, and if you haven't read 1 Chronicles 29, I would actually uh, encourage you to just go ahead and read that this week. It's a glorious chapter. It teaches you a lot about money and its origins and what real stewardship is. It deserves a whole sermon or sermons just in and of its own. But in the midst of this, um, as David is saying, look, we've been allowed, you've given us stuff so that we can give it back to you because we're stewards, not owners, right? I don't own anything. I know the government and the world says you own it and you signed it, but you ain't own nothing, right? True ownership means it can't be taken from you. Remember Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. That's ownership. You ain't got that own kind of ownership. Neither do I. We're stewards, not owners. In the midst of praising God for the opportunity to give back to what God has given, look what he says in verse 18. He says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers. He's saying, you know, this is just like you. 
Because I remember you giving to Abraham when he had nothing. I remember that because he didn't have no money. And you called him to kind of be a vagabond and a, a, a kind of the prototypical missionary to go to a place and form a people out of nothing so that there would be a people for generations and generations, millions and millions of people who would praise God, and you resourced him. And the God of Isaac, boy, you're a miraculous God. There you are giving again. And then we hear, and Israel. How many times did God provide for Israel? Some of us know the most miraculous story, which we'll hit in just a minute, of coming out of Egypt, where it says in the little text in there, uh, in, the, in the late chapters of, I think it's 12, of Exodus, it says, and, and the, 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 the Hebrews plundered the Egyptians. And they, they just they gave them all their stuff, right? And it's amazing. The God of our fathers. He, he asked God to keep forever such purposes and thoughts. What are the purposes and thoughts? That are kingdom, vertical. Help us not get lost in this. Keep these things in the hearts of your people. Who are your people? The people of David in present day? Yes, but, but it goes all the way back. In other words, David's going, I see the connection. I saw how you work in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I saw how you worked in Joshua and, 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 and all of those people. I saw you working in them. And he says, keep that in the hearts and direct their hearts towards you. It's amazing. David had the confidence of looking back and going, I know what kind of God you are by who you rolled with, by who is in your family and how you love them. And I can look back and I can say, man, if you can give Abraham a miracle, maybe you can do that for me. If you can overcome the obstacles that Isaac had, maybe you can help me. If you can help me like you can help Jacob and all of our fathers, I believe that about you. But let me show you one of the most familiar usages in all of Scripture. It's in the book of Exodus. And we know this chapter, it's so famous. But again, we're honing on just this phrase, the God of our fathers. So I'm going to read through this pretty rapidly. But I want you to take note of how many times we see our phrase, God of our fathers. And I want you to take note the position it plays and how God is using it in this chapter. I want you to take note of that. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to, the, to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, watch this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Interesting, he says to Moses, I'm your dad's God. Because Moses is going, who is this? What is this? Catch that. Who is this water? Now, a lot of y'all love this chapter because you're like, get to the I am. Get to the I am. Let's, 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 let's bash the Jehovah Witnesses. Let's get the, get the Muslims. Get them. The I am. No, 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 no. Notice how he introduces himself to Moses. He says, I'm your dad's God. What? That's how you want to introduce yourself? Yes. I've been rocking with your father. Meaning I know you. I had a little something to do with you coming into the world. And I also am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Y'all, you know them. 
It says, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God, the God of his father. He was afraid to look at the face of the God of his father. This, wow, the God of Abraham, wow, the God of Isaac and Jacob. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this to say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Wow, God is just like claiming this is my people, that's my person, these are my groups, these are my people. Now, again, we just read this, but this is like radical for, for, the, for the Hebrews who are slaves to come to the Egyptians who are the global superpower and say, um, uh, how do we make this really politically correct? You see, what we need, what, what we're trying to say, well, spit it out. Um, our God wants you to let us go. What do you mean your God? Our God, the God of the Hebrews, powerful, 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 has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of all the Egyptians. And when you go out, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. There are two great redemptive acts in all of the Bible. There are minor redemptive acts, like getting Israel out of Babylon and all those types of things. The two greatest redemptive acts in all the Bible are clearly the Exodus and the cross. Like unashamedly, the Bible doesn't even bat an eye. Because as you read the Bible, it's always going back to the Passover or to the cross. Those are two great. And what I want you to see is, in the Passover, God showed up as, I'm the God of your dad and of your fathers. What should, I call, what should I call you? I am. 
I've always been that, always will be that. I will always be the God closely associated with people. Whether you like it or not, you might not like that about me, but that's how I am. I'm an intensely relational God. I want to be an unbroken fellowship with people. I want reconciliation. And we see the culmination of all of this when Jesus comes to the world and he clearly, clearly enunciates that the target of God's people is more in accordance with Jeremiah 32, 17. I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Go into all the world and make disciples. Go and preach the gospel all to the world. Start in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. You getting the message? Yeah, Jesus went about to cities and, and communities and, and behold, he, he ministered, didn't he? The God of our fathers. So what can we, we kind of just bring home and, and really marinate on? The God of our fathers. Well, first of all, just think about his patience. I alluded to this before. God is really patient. Like, really patient. And you know, when we talk about God's attributes, we don't always mention his patience. But Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the patience of God is our salvation. <laughs> he says he's patiently waiting for us to believe. Now, come on. I know some of you are so patient. Uh, Brother Steve, Pastor Steve was talking to my wife. Uh, I'm trying to be a good husband, and I'm not really a good husband, you know, but I fake it sometimes. So I, 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 I painted our room. But it's not a great paint job. It's the effort that counted. <laughs> uh, but I've never, my flesh has never curled so much as painting. And I can't stand Home Depot and I went there five times. I know a lot of you like, love Home Depot. And then, then I painted the bathroom and that was worse. You know, all the little details. But you know what painting takes? It takes Patience. You just got to be patient. I called my friend, Charlie Ward. He's a dentist, so he's very patient. And he's like, Crawford, you got to wait, and you got to do this. And wait. I can't hear him. Wait, and take your time, and wait, and measure, and line it up. And I'm like, ah! Right? God is patient. How patient? Well, Abraham, 75 years, and then called him. We would have been like, oh, you're 35. You got to get going. God's like, he can wait. Then after 75 years, they waited over two decades for him to give them a child. You know when God waits, he's always good. When we think he's waiting, we think he must not be good. But God waits always for a purpose, right? And then miracle Isaac came, right? And he got married and he had a child. They had children, right? And we get Jacob. We learn from God of our fathers, that God is patient. You know, he did say he's the God of the Hebrews. You got to be really patient to be the God of the Hebrews. <laughs> right? We'll get to us in a minute, right? But right now we're going to pick on the Hebrews, right? Because we know them. They're, 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 their stories are actually in the Bibles. Ours aren't in there. There's a recording. You got to be really patient with people that you do all these miracles and you get them out. And then they go, we want to go back. Right? But when, when God says, I'm the God of the Hebrews, think about his patience. 
Think about how he waited and waited and, and, and was, in, in modern language, bargained with and pleaded with time and time and time again where he did not bring destruction. He was so patient. We learn the patience of God with our fathers. You might be able to think about some of our other fathers. I, th- I, th- I think about anybody who, who comes in there. What about Rahab? We call her, and the scripture calls her, Rahab the harlot. But that's not how she ended her story. She ended her story being a believer and encapsulated in the hall of fame in Hebrews 11. Like patience, patience, patience. We want to grab people and yoke them up and you need to repent right now. And God's like, you're you're right, but I'm willing to wait. He's so patient, so patient. Would you have been that patient with Jonah? Jonah, go this way. I'm going that way. Okay, Jonah, I'm going to pick you up and spit you out. Now go do it. He stomps over there, does it. Then he sits by a tree and he's pouting again. I mean, wouldn't you at some point say, okay, it's time for a little bit. You know, spare the rods, pull it. We're going to. And here's the, the end of Jonah is with a rhetorical question. You had pity on the plant. Should I not have pity on 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right? It's like, what are you doing, Lord? Why are you talking to this man? Slap him up. (laughs) Patience. The God of our fathers engendered patience. What about the the way that God dealt with David over his lifetime? And we could go through story after story after story. But that's not all. What about God's immutability? I like that word because a sophisticated word makes you sound smart. But it just basically means God doesn't change. The God of our fathers. Wait a minute, God, you, you, didn't, you didn't change your mind after you picked Abraham and shortly in he lied on his wife? That's how we say it on the East Coast. We don't say it on the West Coast. We don't say lied on, but y'all say lied on, so I'm learning. He lied on his wife. to my sister. And how many times did Abraham do that, by the way? Anybody remember? He did it more than once, didn't he? <laughs> He's like, hey, I'm scared. Twice. This is the father of the faith. Shouldn't God have changed his mind? God says, I'm not changing my mind. That's my guy. I'm not like you. Once I covenant with you, I don't leave you. You might leave me, but I don't leave you. God is faithful. That doesn't mean he shows up when you think he should. That means he's always there. He's immutable. And it takes an immutable God to save us, to care for us, because we give God a thousand reasons every single day to change his mind, and he don't change his mind. How different is God from culture today? You put the wrong thing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, people don't change their mind. Am I getting a little too personal? I'm not supposed to meddle like that. Listen, listen. When the Bible says God's immutability, do you know what I hear? I hear the salvation of my soul because I've given God millions of reasons to turn his back on me. And God says unflinchingly, I will never leave you or forsake you. I, the Lord, do not change. Otherwise, you would be consumed. We see the immutability of God. 
as his immutability transcends all of the volatility of our sin and depravity and seasons and the immutability of God was there when Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a baby. The immutability of God was there when Jacob was deceiving Esau. When the whole thing was falling apart, God was like, nope, I'm going to keep it together. When the children of Israel were enslaved, he was immutable. I'm going to get my people out. It's what I do. I don't change my mind. Once I make a promise, I don't back out of it. I'm not like your politicians. I'm not like the sports stars. I'm not like the influencers on, 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 on the web. I'm not like your Christian pastors or these great musicians who fall away and they were. And they, I, I'm not like that. I'm immutable. I don't change. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm always here. We know that Hagar experienced this because she called him El Roy, thou art the God who sees. Of course I'm El Roy. Of course I'm going to see you when Abraham and Sarah kick you out after they used you and abused you and trafficked you. This is all within our canon. And God goes, I didn't change my mind. I said that your son would be a mighty nation. And I ain't changing your mind because of the circumstances. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. You think God is unchanged up. Why? Because Biden might become president or because this is happening or that or this or that or Trump or this or that. God hasn't changed his mind. Jesus is still building his church and the gates of hell still won't proceed against them. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not a pandemic, not some movement. It's not going to happen because God's immutable. The third thing is mercy. Do we not see mercy when God says, I'm the God of our fathers? We look at our fathers and we see that they're not many noble, not many mighty according to the flesh. It's kind of comforting in a kind of distorted, weird way, isn't it? We either look back and we go, man, well, if they got in, I can get in, you know? Man, if they finished, I can finish. Because look, yo, let's be honest. Some of these dudes, they could go boom, 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 boom. We're like, they had to be carried across the line. We talk about finishing the race. How did they, we like, did they cross? I'm not sure. But he's merciful. And you know what mercy is. Mercy is giving you what you don't deserve. It's a gospel trait. It's a distinctly gospel trait. You don't find it in Islam. You don't find it in all of the, the, the cults or the break-offs, the paragospels. You only find it rooted and grounded in the canon and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? You only find it there. Mercy is God giving us what we don't deserve. And we see that in our fathers, don't we? Time and time and time, he gave them what they don't deserve. And you know what that means? That means if he's the God of our fathers, then that means he's the God of our fathers. And if he gave them mercy, he's going to give us mercy. Who needs mercy today? Who needs to be given what they really don't deserve? A fourth attribute is just family. And this is touching for me uh, for so many reasons. But as you guys know, there is an... There seems to be, it appears to be, it seems that there's clear evidence that there is a war on family. And there are organizations that are calling for the destruction of the nuclear family as we know it. it. And when God says, I'm the God of the Hebrews, I'm the God of your fathers, he's saying, I'm the God of a family. There's a really big family 
It's the family of God. You say, well, how do you become a member of the family of God? Do you have to be rich? Do you have to vote this way or that way? Do you, do you have to have a clean record? I mean, what, can you get it expunged? It's all grace and mercy. It's look to me and be ye save all ye ends of the earth. It's a simple look. It's a simple act of faith. It's trusting. It's believing in Jesus Christ. And you become a member. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We, we, have, we, have, a, we have a glorious family. We start to look at the people in our family. We're like, man, these people are in our family. That's what I was saying. I was, I was actually cycling. I was listening to the story of David. I was like, wow, this guy's like my brother. It's amazing because, like, I'm not a warrior, and I don't know how to, I mean, I pretend like I am, but David was a straight warrior, like, killed people and conquered, and God's favor was all over him. And I get to call David, that's my brother, he's my family. Don't mess with me, I might call David. He's like the asset. He's like the born, man. He's like the asset. Think about all the people. Think about Mary's. Think about Moses' mother, the face she had. Think about the women in the Bible who played such strategic roles in redemptive history. Time would fail us to go through all their names. The Rachels and the Rebecca's and the Sarah's. And then we, we have those women in Luke chapter 8 where it says they're the ones who supported Jesus' ministry. Not the men. They support it. Read it for yourself. Luke chapter 8, 1 through, one, 1 through 3. They support it. The women contribute. The women were supporting Jesus. They're part of our family. We have a pretty cool family. And remember, Jesus knew what sin would do. He knew that if you live in this world, you're going to be jacked up by this world sometime, and you're going to come from a broken home, or, or, or there'll be all kind of dysfunctions, and you'll feel like, I don't know where I belong. And the church, and the church is supposed to be that one place where anybody can come in and fit in. Because God says, look at my history. I take anybody. You're like, man, you sure do. We need to talk. Some of these guys are characters. Samson, come on, Lord, does he have to be a part of the family? Jonah, why did you put him in the family? Solomon, was he even saved? Is Ecclesiastes supposed to really be in the Bible? God's like part of the family. Family's really wide, really wide. If you so much as look upon me, you shall be saved. But lastly, the thing that stood out to me the most, brothers and sisters, about God of our fathers is simply this idea of proclamation. I just couldn't get past this, the idea that God would, in some sense, brothers and sisters, have the nerve to say God of our fathers. Because what it means is he's not ashamed to claim me. You know, some people don't like me. I know, it's hard to believe. It's crazy. <laughs> Some people don't like you. You know, I've, as you might imagine, being a guy who, who lives in Baltimore and preaches down there and preaches all around the state and preaches in all kinds of settings, I could actually go to a setting where they're this way and go to a setting where they're this way and then these people over here don't like that I'm preaching over there and these people don't like that I'm preaching over there. And, and my solace is... He's not afraid to call me family. Like, he's not afraid to proclaim. And we all have this intense desire to belong, but permanently to belong, never to be kicked out of a family, because we were meant to live in families. 
Sin is trying to hijack that. The gospel's restoring that. Listen to these words in Hebrews. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's powerful. That means if you walked up to Jesus, if Jesus was here, say he was in the parking lot, right? And you walked to Jesus and you said, like, do you, I mean, do you really roll with Michael Crawford? Because, like, we, you left your books behind and we started looking at him and he is a wretch. Lord, really? You can't pick anybody better? Be like, that's my brother. What? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke chapter 7, behold, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that was who was touching him. Jesus is amazing. The Bible goes on to say, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. One of the things that's so endearing to me is that God is not afraid to tell us who's in his family. And he, he's proclaimed it for thousands of years. And then he put it in a book and scripturated it. It's perfection. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's sufficient, right? And then it's inspired. It's like in stone. And it's like, God, you're really claiming these people. Like for real. You don't want to go back. You, you don't want to change this. You want to raise up another writer and edit the Bible and cut out some names? Because, God, I got to tell you, some of these people don't make you look good. Some of the stuff your people have done throughout the ages don't make you look good. Some of this stuff is contra. Some people read the Bible, Lord, and they don't want nothing to do with the Bible because the stuff is in the Bible. There's stuff in the Bible, Lord. There's rape. There's slavery. Ah, and God's going, you know what? But those are my. Your people did. Yeah, they did. I didn't approve. But I didn't disown them like you do. Because I'm not like you. You've never met anybody like me who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You've never met anyone like the rock of our salvation. You've never met anyone like Elroy, and you have never met anyone like Jesus who says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. What a wonderful reminder from a little phrase, God of our fathers. I don't know how this is going to sit with it, uh, you know, specifics, but I just want to encourage you that um, I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe in just coincidences. I believe everything is sovereign. And I was supposed to be here to preach this because there must be at least one person in here who needed to be reminded Man, if God loved them, not if God could, no. If God loved, he did. Them, he can love me. And if God bore with them, he will bear with me. We live in such hopelessness, brothers and sisters. You know, suicide rates like triple. We live in such hopelessness, even within the church. Statistics say, crowd this big, somebody this week thought about, maybe it'd be better if I wasn't here. Remember the God of your fathers. Moses thought the same way at times. So did David. I want to press in and say the God of our fathers is here today. He's willing to receive you afresh again. 
This is what he does. And he's given us Jesus as just an evidence of his love for us. So I want to encourage you to believe. I want to encourage you to repent. I want to encourage you to trust afresh again and reach out for the God of our fathers because he's not far at all. And may the God of our fathers be near and dear to Trinity, Trinity, <laughs> Cornerstone Church. That's the old you. By the way, he's still your God too, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Grace and peace.